Finally, we're going to do the gospel lesson, and, and this is a bit truncated, so, and I'm going to have you remain seated this morning because of how this plays out. We're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 24. Our lesson is in chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel. We actually have to go all the way back two chapters to understand where this conversation starts, and I'll give you more details about this in the main study. But Matthew records, if you will, Jesus left the temple and was, working, uh, was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now that's the beginning of the conversation. Our lesson this morning is the end of this conversation. And because it's longer, I'm going to give it to you in video form. So Pastor A, when you're ready, please play our lesson text. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So that is the end of the conversation, and it obviously prompts more of this thinking about 
end times, if you will, now that we're into the second Sunday. I don't know if you notice, I haven't been asking you what the candles represent, because this year I actually put that in the, the newsletter, so most of you already have the answers. If you forget what each symbolizes, I would encourage you to read that Advent article just to refresh your memory. And also have uh, some discussion about why this year we're actually going to take a look at the last Advent of Jesus, his second coming. Now, I know that's something a lot of people think about. Maybe it's not always on your mind every single day of your life, but it is one of those areas that a lot of people have questions. In fact, if I asked you to guess what some of the top questions people have about the end times, and I'm not going to ask you to, to answer out loud here, but just think that through. Maybe your own questions or questions that other people have asked you if they know you're a Christian, they know you study your Bible. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that as the world grows closer to the end? And especially given recent and current events, it's on people's mind a lot more. They're wondering how what's going on over in Israel. Does that have any bearing on the end of the world? I would suspect that most of you could probably come to some pretty good guesses as to what those questions are. I checked a couple of websites, went through some surveys of people who have asked us, what questions do you have about the end? And these top three uh, immediately kind of, uh, in my own mind, said, well, yeah, that's logical. A lot of people want to know the what, the when, the how of the end times, and specifically Judgment Day. We have that as part of our lesson. But then what caught my attention was the second most, the list of the second most popular questions that people are asking about the end times and about the end of the world. And if you read through them, Mark of the B666, we quickly come to realize that a lot of people have misunderstanding about how this world is going to end and the events leading up to it because they have a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation, how it was written, why it was written, and what God is trying to teach us and tell us through the book of Revelation. And it dawned on me how curious this is because it seems like it's only this doctrine of Scripture, it's only this subject matter that people get it all backwards. Have you ever noticed, maybe amongst friends or relatives, that they're seeking answers about the end of time and the end of the world, and the way they do that is they go to the end of the Bible. They start looking for those answers in the back of the book, the book of Revelation. I'm not sure whenever that practice became popular amongst people or even amongst some religions because what I've discovered and what I was taught that if we want answers from God about our lives here, there's only really one way to do that search and that's to start at the beginning, to start at creation and then work our way from that as God not only uh, tells us what an amazing creator he is, but he starts to fill our hearts and minds with the details of what our lives here are supposed to be, what they were intended to be. And now that sin is very much a part of this world, what are the answers for this life and for that which is to come? So that's what we're going to do this morning, because as we get to this lesson about the separation between the sheep and goats, it's clear to us Jesus is talking about the end times. He is talking about the last day that this world spins. And so we also have questions for which we are seeking answers. But in order to really understand what Jesus is teaching to his disciples, we're going to follow the same principle of going back to the beginning. And that's why we had the gospel lesson we did and then attached the video to it. And I've already kind of primed you that in this discussion Jesus is having with his followers, he far, spends far less time on the last day as he spends time on all of the days leading up 
to that last day. And there is actually, when you go through the whole conversation, three things that Jesus teaches his disciples. Be ready, be busy, and be sheep. And of course, that's our lesson for today. Now, let's go back to the beginning. You heard me read the gospel lesson. Now, you heard that Jesus was leaving the temple, but let's put that into its context. What day was this? Well, it's actually Tuesday of Holy Week. Holy Week was the last day of Jesus' earthly ministry. And three days after this, he would be nailed to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Tuesday was spent mostly at the temple in Jerusalem. And if you go through the Gospels, you will find he taught lesson after lesson after lesson of important things that the people needed to know and things that they had not been taught which tells us he reached the end of his teaching on Tuesday. Wednesday, we don't hear anything about. Thursday, what we hear about is the Passover, the gift of the Lord's Supper, the betrayal, the arrest, and everything leads then to the cross. So if you understand the context, what we are studying this morning is the last public lesson Jesus has to teach us about our lives here on earth before he goes to the cross. As they're leaving for the day, the disciples call his attention to the temple. What large stones. And they, they comment on the architecture, which is kind of interesting because this was known as Herod's temple. This was the temple that was built and, if you will, remodeled under King Herod. I'm sorry, built earlier, but remodeled under King Herod. The original temple was so much more beautiful. The original temple, Solomon's temple, was so much larger in its expanse of rooms. In fact, when they laid the foundations for the second temple, on that day the older people cried because they had seen what a beautiful building had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and now this was its replacement. And even with all of that, the second temple, begun under Ezra and Nehemiah, was a magnificent structure. But it catches the disciples off guard when Jesus says to them, uh, by the way, the day is coming when all these stones are going to be torn down and this building is going to be destroyed. What he's referencing is 70 AD when the Roman army came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. He's prophesying about that day. After they left Jerusalem, and this was pretty much the pattern all week long, they would go out to Bethany where he would stay. Well, going to the house of Mary and Martha, uh, you had to pass through the Mount of Olives, and they would often stop there. Uh, sometimes they would just catch their breath. Sometimes they would have some reflective moments. That's where they were at when the disciples came and asked Jesus, because this had been bugging them, when, when's this going to happen? What are, what are the signs that this beautiful building is about to be destroyed. How, how is this all going to take place? The same questions were on their mind that are on most of our minds. Well, what we need to understand before we actually take this apart is how prophecy works. And in this situation, it's a very specific kind of prophecy. It's what's known as a dual prophecy. So Jesus is going to talk about one event, and then he's going to parlay that into talking about a second event. The best illustration of understanding a dual prophecy I've ever been uh, blessed to hear is, is like driving towards a huge mountain range. From a distance, all of those mountain peaks look very close together. But as you grow nearer and nearer to the mountains, it becomes obvious to you that one mountain peak is a long distance away from the next mountain peak. Now, we were introduced to this last week with the first Advent lesson from Isaiah. 
he does the same thing. In the near hand, he's speaking about the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's prophesying about the destruction of that first temple at the hands of the Babylonians. And then he pivots from that conversation into the second mountain peak of talking about judgment for planet Earth. What we need to do is be very careful that we don't confuse the two mountain peaks, especially... There we go. Especially because Jesus is doing the very same thing. He begins by talking about the judgment against Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans, and then he pivots into a discussion about the end times and the judgment of earth. Now, there's a reason why so many people are so confused about what's going to happen at the end of this world. There's a reason why a lot of people are very confused about how judgment day is going to proceed and what those events mean. See, in this larger conversation, and this covers two chapters in the book of Matthew, there is this entire section where Jesus is talking about judgment. And what happens is people kind of lose their way because part of the conversation, he's talking only about destruction of Jerusalem. Part of the conversation, the part that we're going to deal with this morning, he's talking only about the destruction of the world. And then the middle part of this conversation, he's actually talking about both of these and sometimes what happens is people want to apply one section to another. If, if this is a topic that interests you, and, and I think it does interest a lot of people, uh, one of the things I'd like to just let you know is Mark and Luke also talk about this conversation. Matthew's the one that records it in its greatest detail. But if you want to dig further into this, those are the sections you can look to. And, and it doesn't change what we're talking about this morning, but there are some interesting details that, that do help to flesh this out. Let me just give you one example. Mark tells us that it wasn't all 12 disciples who came to Jesus on top of the Mount of Olives with these questions. Mark tells us it was Andrew, it was Peter, it was James, and it was John. They're the ones that had questions about the end. That isn't to say that our video was wrong and that Jesus shared the answer with the whole entire group of 12. But it's those, those select few, if you will, and these two families were very close to each other. They probably had been talking about this amongst themselves. What's he talking about? What does this mean? So eventually somebody probably came up with the bright idea, hey, why don't we go ask Jesus to explain this to us? So that's what he does. One of the things, though, if you do choose to go into this much deeper, please keep this in mind that you cannot confuse the sections because that first larger section is completely about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I've heard so many people, I've, I've seen websites that will misapply that to the end of the world. And so people are not only confused, but quite honestly, there's even Christians who are afraid that as we get closer to the end, and as judgment day comes, and fear is the last thing our Lord ever wanted us to have in preparation for his second coming. What he wants us to have is these three things, beginning with preparations. As Matthew 24 starts to get to its end, and Jesus transitions to the second mountaintop, the first thing he does is again and again he says, be ready. And he does it by saying nobody knows when this day is going to happen. Not even the angels. And he says not even the Son of Man. And if you're thinking, well, how can Jesus not know? He's God. He's talking about in his state of humiliation. That, that phase of his earthly life where he set aside his powers and abilities as the Son of God. So he could honestly say, when I'm only thinking of my physical human nature, I don't know. 
course, as God, he does know, and don't even ask me to do the math on that. It's kind of like trying to explain the Trinity. It just doesn't work out in the human mind. The point is, though, that nobody actually knows when the world will end. So the only thing Jesus wants us to take home about that is, is to always be ready. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. It could be 1,000 years from now. Nobody knows. And by the way, all of those signs that are talked about in Matthew 24, most of them applying to the destruction of Jerusalem, but some do apply to the end of the world, all of those signs have been fulfilled since the end of the first century. So when we see what's going on in the world today, we can't start to freak out going, uh-oh, we're almost there. Because they've always been fulfilled in our lifetime, in the lifetime of our fathers and grandfathers, so on down. So those signs have been fulfilled, basically saying, at any moment our Lord can return. To emphasize this point of being ready, he then goes on to tell what is known as the parable of the ten virgins. And I'm going to suspect most of you are familiar with it, but if not, it's a beautiful picture of the end. Because the context is a bridegroom, which in Scripture signifies our Lord, was coming to take his bride, which in Scripture signifies the Christian church, and according to Jewish traditions, the bridegroom would come, get his bride, take her home, they would be man and wife, and they would live happily ever after. That's the story of the end of the world. But there were many who were invited to celebrate and to participate, and specifically here we have ten virgins. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Why? Because five of them had their lamps ready, they had extra oil, because they didn't know how long it would be before the bridegroom returned. Five of them came unprepared. So they had to go off and buy extra oil. So that's when the bridegroom came. The five wise virgins were invited into the wedding feast, and the party began. And by the time the five foolish ones got there, they were locked out, and they could not celebrate with the bridegroom or his bride. It's Jesus talking about the end of the world, but he's doing it in such a very picturesque way to remind us to always be ready. From there, he pivots to the very next one, of being busy. And you might think, wait, wait, what? what? Okay, I'm supposed to be watchful. I'm supposed to anticipate the fact that the Lord can return any day. I look forward to that final day when we all get to go to heaven, when the judgment is finally visibly and publicly stated and that we will actually be declared righteous finally for the final time and taken off with our bridegroom to celebrate. Where does this busy part come from? Well, notice what the Lord says. Beginning with Genesis, be fruitful, be productive. Do what I created you to do. And granted, this world is no longer what God created it to be. And our lives are not the fulfillment of what God actually had planned for us. But even with sin twisting and wrecking that, God restated this for Adam and Eve, and it's meant for all generations to come. Live up to your creation. Live up to your calling. That's what I want you to do. And in order to teach that, he teaches this parable of the ten talents. I know how we use the word talent. It's ability or whatever. It, it was a form of money. The master goes away. He has three servants. One, he gives five talents, five pieces of money. One, he gives two. One servant, he gives one. He says, I want you to use this. I want you to put it to work. I want you to be productive until I return. Well, the one with five invests it. The one with two invests it. The one with one goes and buries it in the ground. The master comes back. There's an accounting. Judgment day. The five, the servant with five, gained five more. The servant with two gained two more. They are called good and faithful servants. 
They were busy. They were doing that for which they were created. Then the guy with one talent shows up and goes, here, this is yours. Where's anything else? Well, I'm afraid of you. So I went and buried it in the ground. This is all you get back. He's referred to as a wicked and a lazy servant because he didn't do that for which he was created. He didn't follow his master's command. He refused to be productive. It's another picture of how Judgment Day ends up. Those who are true servants and those who are not. Now this was all extremely important to understand our lesson and to lay the groundwork that the final thing that the Lord tells us in preparation for the end times and that day of judgment is to be sheep. And I'll just admit to you, for the longest time, I've actually used this entire lesson wrong. Um, not so much that I've taught it incorrectly, but I think I've focused on the wrong things. Because within this lesson, there's all kinds of proof passages that hell was originally created for the devil and his evil angels. We find that in Matthew 25. Uh, that uh, uh, Christians... Uh, now go to heaven when originally they were created to live on earth. And his calling them to uh, take their inheritance uh, suggests that heaven had to be created as well because originally this was going to be our, our home. There's all kinds of proof in this section for other doctrines of Scripture, but that's not the focus. Of course, there is very clear the part about judgment, separation from sheep and goats. And so this becomes one of those main passages that we Christians tend to look to and go to for our answers for Judgment Day. And it's obvious to us there is a separation. On Judgment Day, one of the activities will be you are saved, <coughs> excuse me, and you are not. So it is about judgment. But I think we've missed the point. I think I've missed the point because there's something curious about this that I had never noticed before. And, and I, I kind of allude to that. I don't know if you got a chance to read in your worship folder. I put in this little article, Preparation for This Main Study. Uh, and part of that came every time I was looking for something, a picture or, or maybe some insight on, on some of the things here. I always heard this referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I kept scratching my head. I go, this isn't a parable. I, I get why people say that. There were two parables leading up to this. And I explain what a parable is as compared to what this is. This is an illustration. And it might seem like a moder minor difference, but that's how the Holy Spirit works. He speaks with accuracy. Uh, we need to understand that and appreciate it because this wasn't a made-up story. This was a picture to help the, uh, the disciples understand how Judgment Day works. It was an illustration of something that was very common practice in those days. That in the morning when a shepherd takes his sheep out to go graze in, in the fields, he puts some goats in with them. And then at night when he comes back into camp, he has to separate the goats from the sheep. He puts the goats in one pen, and he puts the sheep in another pen. When Jesus speaks to this illustration, immediately the disciples would have gotten it. Now, it's not so common to us because we're less of an agricultural society, and, and we don't tend to, to have sheep and goats the way they had sheep and goats. And so what we usually end up doing is spending time explaining the illustration so that we can understand better the picture of what Jesus is talking about when it comes to Judgment Day. And what we end up doing is focusing so much on the judgment part, we, we skip over something. Why did Jesus choose this picture? Sheep and goats. He didn't have to. There's, there's other illustrations. There's other pictures in the Bible 
Uh, in fact, one comes in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus could have saved himself a lot of time in this long conversation with his disciples and described Judgment Day. He said, well, remember that, that, that story I told you about the weed and the wheats? <clears throat> the wheat and the, the tares? At the end of that story, the wheat is gathered together and put in one place, and the weeds are gathered together and thrown into the fire. It's another illustration of, of Judgment Day. Why, why didn't he just go uh, uh, refer back to Matthew 13? It would have been easier. Why does he feel compelled when talking to his disciples and giving them the answers for the questions that are on their minds about the coming judgment, why does he talk about sheep and goats? And after mulling it over, it, it occurs to me it has to do with the character. It has to do with the attributes of the examples that he uses in this lesson of teaching about the end times. And that's when it becomes obvious to us it's less about the last day as it is about all of the days leading up to the judgment. Well, well what do I mean? Well, well, consider the attributes of a sheep. Scripture oftentimes uses the picture of a sheep to refer to the followers of Christ, to the children of God. In fact, Psalm 119, I've strayed like a, a lost sheep. And that should give you some insight into why God, the Holy Spirit, chooses sheep to oftentimes illustrate us. It has to do with their nature, their, their character. Sheep are playful and gentle. Now, that may not describe all of us, or maybe not even describe any of us, but by nature, that's what we were created to be. Sheep are often representative of innocence. Remember, one of the main sacrifices in Israel was a lamb, a sheep, unspotted, undiseased. It was meant to be a representation of purity, uh, of innocence. But there's something else. Sheep are not that bright. And now you're going, okay, I get it now. I get why sheep <laughs> represent us. This explains the illustration. In the morning, when the shepherd took the sheep out to the field, if he didn't put any goats with them, they would go to a patch of grass and they would literally eat the grass from under their own feet and it would get all eaten up and then they'd stand there going, I'm still hungry. Now what should I do? That's sheep for you. And a, a shepherd would have to constantly get up and move the sheep to the next patch of grass. Well, you can imagine shepherds want their job to be as simple as possible. So you would put a couple goats in with a larger herd of sheep. Goats love to wander. Goats love to eat. So they would eat up that area. They would just naturally go to the next area of grass, and because sheep have this following instinct, the sheep would just naturally follow the goats, and all day long, basically, the goats were doing the job of the shepherd. That's a pretty good description of the children of God, of the followers of Christ. We have this natural characteristic, this attribute to follow. But the fact that sin has made us into not what sheep were originally created to be, this following instinct sometimes can be a huge blessing, and sometimes it can be a terrible curse. In 2005 in Turkey, a suicide sheep jumped off a cliff and 1,500 other sheep followed the first one. This may sound surprising to you, but this has happened in Istanbul, Turkey. First, the scene began with just one sheep jumping off the cliff to die. The shepherds had left around 1,500 sheep to graze and they relaxed while having their breakfasts. In a few moments, they saw all the 1,500 sheep following the first one and jumping off the same cliff, as reported by the Turkish media. 
This led to the death of 450 animals altogether. Wondering how the others survived, Axum newspaper stated that the others, who jumped after the 450 sheep, did not die as the fall had cushioned after the death of the earlier ones. Since there were a lot of dead bodies already, the rest of the sheep survived by falling on the wool or the soft pile of the other dead sheep. Tell me if that doesn't describe sheep. That by nature, we like to follow, but we don't always follow the right thing. Uh, if you were one of the last ones to jump, you were okay. But the first ones off that clip following that one rogue sheep, well, they lost their lives. That explains us and what sin has done to God's creation of us, absolutely perfect. Left on our own, we're going to get lost. Left on our own, we're going to die. Left on our own, there is no way to be saved. It's only when we hear the voice of a really good shepherd, the best shepherd, and we recognize that voice. And that's something also about sheep. They have the ability to distinguish faces and voices. I read up to 30 different faces and voices. That's why when an imposter shepherd calls, uh, sheep tend not to follow. But when we hear the shepherd's voice, by God's grace, we do follow him. That's the character of sheep. Now, in contrast to that, we have the goats. And scripture talks about how often goats are portrayed. Uh, the book of Proverbs talks about goats as, as not having this following instinct. They're independent and impulsive. They strut around the place like they're a lion or a king. They don't want to listen to anybody, not the way sheep will. Um, and she, I'm sorry, goats always try to get away. Uh, I read this one article, it was very interesting. Pens which can hold much larger and stronger animals like horses and cows, goats can get out of because they're crafty. They can watch uh, the farmer go in and out of the stall and figure out how to unlock it themselves. And when you put goats into a confined space, uh, they get agitated. And that's why at night when the shepherd brought the sheep back in, he had to separate the sheep from the goats. Because if you put them in the same pen at night, the goats would abuse and probably kill most of those sheep. That's why there was this division. That's why this illustration made perfect sense. And in fact, if you want to talk about just how different the nature of sheep and goats are and why it was the perfect choice for those who refused to hear the voice of Messiah, there's what's known as a Judas goat. And slaughterhouses would use this. You'd get a truckload of sheep in. They're all freaked out and frightened. They had this one goat train that would go in amongst the sheep, gain their trust, and eventually just lead them all to their death. Go goats don't care. Goats don't care about the sheep. Goats don't care even about other goats. Goats care about themselves. And so you can begin to understand why the Lord said, my followers are like sheep, and those who don't follow me are like goats. Now, so you understand, and this is the point that I think maybe I, I missed so many times, this part about when did we do these things for you, Lord? For, for the sheep, when did we show you this love? When did we share with you our, our gifts, our talents? And, and the goats on the other side, I never saw you. I, I never saw the opportunities to do these things. And under their breath, not that I would have done anything about it anyway. This is just naturally who they are. This is just naturally a sheep 
and a goat. And before you jump to any conclusions and talk about what makes a sheep, that's in here too yet, and we'll get to that. The point I'm simply trying to make is, is Jesus is telling those disciples, filled with all these questions, that really should not be top on the list of your priorities. I, I would rather have you being busy being sheep. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. Not just the beginning of this entire conversation, but the beginning of God's entire conversation. Because what separates, in the end, a sheep from a goat, what separates the characteristics of a sheep and a goat, of a follower and a non-follower, is ultimately what it is that finally fixes us. Because sin creates goats. And it leaves in our lives in a, uh, a huge hole that God never intended. In the end, what is it that you choose to fill that hole? Why do I feel so empty, bored, unfulfilled, like something's missing, like I want something more, like there's this giant bottomless infinite hole inside me? So I try to fill it with all kinds of junk to make it go away. But these don't work. They give me a quick high, but it doesn't last, leaving me frustrated, addicted, and wanting more. So I think maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. I need to be bigger, better, smarter, funnier, better looking. So I build myself up on the outside into some person that I don't even know, that I don't even like. And on the inside, I beat myself down, sometimes severely, and I feel more empty. Then I think, maybe if I get the perfect job with the perfect life and the perfect money and all the perfect shiny things I ever wanted, that will fill the hole. So I work and I work and I work and I work, but these things never work out the way we want. And now I got to deal with dead dreams and feeling like a failure. And even if they do work out and I make it to the top and I get all the things I always thought would make me happy, when I get there, I look around and I say, now what? Something's still missing. Time passes, the emptiness has been sitting, festering, fermenting, toxic, and it changes me, making me bitter, critical, and self-centered. And I blame everyone and everything around me for not fulfilling me. And I go from job to job, relationship to relationship, place to place, leaving a real path of cheeriness along the way. Ultimately, I'm tired, I'm done searching, I just don't care, and I give up trying to solve the mystery of the whole and just deal with it. I'm perfectly fine going back to stringing together enough distractions and stimulations to get me through, keeping me moderately satisfied until the day I die. Of course, on the outside, no one would ever know. Everything appears to be going exactly how I wanted it to go, exactly how I planned it to go. A big success, the perfect facade. But on the inside, I'm all alone. And I groan. Quietly. The truth is, I can have all the pleasure, wealth, success, admiration, and all the good things in all the world, but they're not going to fill the hole because they're just not big enough. The hole is bottomless, endless, infinite. These are all limited, ending, finite, and only the infinite can fill the infinite. So what is it? What's big enough? What's bottomless, endless, unlimited, infinite? Why do I feel so empty? Because we're made for fullness. And only God is fullness. You want to talk about contemporary issues. You want to talk about what's going on in our culture right now. Sin has made us into goats. And even amongst God's followers, there's a little goat that lives inside of us. God originally created us all to be sheep. God originally created us all to have those attributes of the sheep that he would speak and we would hear that he would say something and we would follow. That was the original plan. If we go back to the beginning, we see what it was supposed to be like. 
If we go back to the beginning, we recognize there was never meant to be a day of judgment, that it was sin that not only wrecked what was potentially here for each and every one of us, but because of sin, judgment became necessary, and this world is now to be replaced by something far better, something that we look forward to when Christ comes again. But the difference between sheep and goats is what is it that fills that hole in our hearts and in our lives, that hole that has been dug by sin? What is it that makes us sheep? It's at this point that so many are also confused, thinking that's something I have to do. I have to make a choice. I, I have to strive to be a sheep. A sheep is a sheep because they've heard the voice of the shepherd. And the love in that voice has changed that person's heart and their lives. So now everything that we do is characteristic of a sheep. And we know this because within this whole conversation with the disciples, Jesus uses one key word that means we don't choose to be sheep. God makes us into his sheep. And that's the word inheritance, which reminds us it's something that is given to us, not because we've earned it, not because we've paid for it, but because some benefactor loves us so much they've given it to us. If you dig down to the roots of this word, it actually is a picture of receiving something by casting lots. And it's another old practice that we don't do much anymore. You would put a stick or a stone into a cup with your name on it, and it would shake until one of them popped out. That was your lot. The best example of that early on is how the lands in the, the region that is on our minds right now was divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. They received them by lot. They didn't pay for that land. They didn't work for that land. It was given to them by God, it was their inheritance. And in the very same way, God says this judgment is not to be feared. I've already set aside your inheritance. And what tells us that it is ours to be had is the fact that first and foremost, this loving God of ours chose to make us his sheep. It has touched our head. It has touched our hearts. It has touched our hands. So much so that as we make our way through this life, as challenging as it is, and as much as we have to fight that little goat that still lives inside of us, God says, this is who you are. This is who I made you. This is what I died to give to you, your inheritance. So you see, the day of judgment isn't to be feared. There's not a lot of questions out there that are unanswered. God in various parts of Scripture, and if you go back and work through it from the beginning, you see how God lays this all out for us. But this event of Judgment Day, which so many think is going to be standing before some fiery throne of God, waiting for the verdict, do I get to go to the right or to the left, is completely misguided. The Lord says judgment has already taken place. You're no longer condemned. You've crossed from death to life. For those who are sheep, there is no condemnation. And the opposite is true as well. The goats already stand condemned. In our epistle lesson, it's judgment which will be revealed. It's not on that day that you finally find yourself in one camp or the other. It's just on that day it's finally publicly made known which camp you've been living your whole life in. Or maybe only one day of your life. And God, by his grace, hopefully that's the last day of your life. The answer to the questions of disciples about the what, the how, the when, isn't, hey, you need to think about this, this, and this. Jesus says, what I want you to focus on are all the days leading up 
to that day of judgment. Your judgment is already determined. And yes, during this life, you can move from one pen to the other. God forbid the sheep become goats, but it does happen. And God help us that maybe we can be messengers of this loving truth so that more goats become sheep. But your eternal destiny is already determined by whether or not you are receiving that inheritance that has been won for us by Christ. And so the message of this lesson is, first and foremost, be ready. If it isn't Judgment Day that we contemplate, it is the end of our own lives. That day can come on any day. Of course, there's the lesson of be busy. Do what God created you to do. Be busy as a servant of the king. Put your talents to work. That means your money as well as all of the characteristics with which God has blessed you. But most of all, be a sheep. When you hear the voice calling, run toward it. And if you hear an imposter's voice, run the other way. But whatever you do in your daily life, however you choose to give thanks to God for filling that hole in your heart, be a sheep. Because that's who God made you to be. To encourage you in that and to wrap this up, I'm going to do something I don't typically do. Uh, I'm going to show a video I used a couple weeks ago at Fort when I was preaching down there. And I know some of you watch both messages. God bless you, so this will be a repeat, but it's a good reinforcement. Um, but what compelled me to do this is I used it down there, and I had several people come to me with feedback going, Pastor, we followed the advice of the video, and the stories they told, you could see the smile on their face. And it, it just warmed my heart, because uh, sometimes... Um, we shepherds don't know how much the sheep are listening. I think I've done the same thing with God. Is that guy listening to me or, or not? So it's a beautiful chance to give thanks to God when the sheep do hear that voice and, and they do listen. And it's based on the concept of the five-second rule. I'm sure you all know that. There's some arbitrary number that if you drop your cookie on the floor, apparently five seconds uh, lead time before germs actually attach themselves to it. Not sure who came up with that, but... Um, what I'd like to introduce you to is the 10-second rule. The 10-second rule for being a sheep. Many of us like to think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, but when we sense God has actually given us opportunities to live it out, we're often hesitant, uncertain, and tempted to look the other way. It's like we have these dueling voices in our head and heart. One voice telling us to help, and the other voice giving us every excuse in the book not to help. You don't have time for this. They'll be fine. Someone else will stop and help. See, intuitively, we all know that obeying Jesus is going to cost us something. Time, money, embarrassment, something. But by doing nothing, we can save ourselves of all of that. And life moves on comfortable and predictable, at least for us. Is any wonder that our spiritual life feels so beige, more religious than alive? We wrestle with God over a small daily request, and yet most of us still dream of doing great things for Him someday. But the truth is, godly character is shaped less by our big dramatic decisions than it is by the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of simple obedience, largely in obscurity. So how do we get better at saying yes to these promptings the Holy Spirit is giving us? Years ago, I began living by the 10-second rule. Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do. 
and do it immediately before you change your mind.